You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. Welcome to episode 157 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm your host for today. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. And I haven't listened to last week's episode, uh, but I promise there'll be less Old English this week than last week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, joining me today are our two Old English people, Nathan, Nathan Gilmore, who is an associate professor of English at... Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan? Yes, I am. <laughs> and David Grubbs, who is a professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. David? Uh, hi, Michael. Associate and a full professor. I, I, I feel so out of place. We don't... <laughs> I've said this before, but we don't have ranks. Own it, David. Own it. Okay. I'm an endowed frickin' chair. <laughs> you know, there's a plaque in my office that says, uh, refurbishment of this office has been provided by the family of Russell Ferry. I have no idea who that is. But I've, I've, uh, I've often considered calling myself the Russell Ferry professor <laughs> of, or assistant professor of English. Nice. If Russell Ferry and his family are listening, I would love to know who he is slash was. I don't know. All right, well, our episode today, because it comes out the day before April Fool's Day, is on the fool. Um, Normally, we would begin an episode like this with etymology, but the etymology of fool is actually pretty simple. It comes from the old French word for fool. So instead, uh, dude, instead, let's start with the place we sometimes also start, the Bible. Uh, the The word fool shows up in several notable Bible passages Nathan, what are the Hebrew and Greek authors talking about when they talk about fools? And are we in danger of hellfire for doing this episode? Well, first of all, the Hebrew word kasil is what usually gets translated in the book of Proverbs and Psalms as fool. Uh, And it's one of those that defies the normal binaries that we sometimes think of. I used to teach people, uh, and I now repent of this, that in the Old Testament, when you see the word fool, you should think not of someone who lacks... Uh, intelligence or who lacks uh, mental capacity, but rather someone who is lacking morally or ethically. Well, the fact of the matter is those two are so tightly connected uh, in the ancient mindset that it's really a fool's errand to separate them. Uh, <laughs> and so when you see Casillo, yes, thank you, David. Uh, so when you see I those wasn't, two... I wasn't going to dignify that with laughter, <laughs> even fake laughter like David's. So when you see that word fool in the Old Testament, realize that uh, we're not necessarily talking about someone who has a low SAT score or even someone who sticks forks in toasters. Uh, but in addition to those two, uh, it's also someone who thinks, okay, what's the right thing to do? I have a pretty good idea of it, and then does the other thing. All right, so 
when the fool says in his heart there is no God. That's one of the most famous fool passages in the Old Testament. Uh, the rest of the psalm, if you actually read past verse 1, uh, indicates that this is not an atheist in the modern sense. Those haven't been invented yet. Uh, but rather it's someone who lives life as if Yahweh is not going to punish wickedness and reward goodness. Practical uh, so, atheism, as it's sometimes called. Yeah, yeah, although even that, I'm, I'm a little bit edgy because it, it still brings that concept into the ancient world that doesn't really belong there. Uh, now, when you get into the New Testament, uh, the word is a little bit more familiar, or should be. Uh, it is moros, uh, whose neuter form is moron. Uh, hopefully that sounds... <laughs> You know, a little bit familiar to our listeners. Uh, and this is the famous passage, uh, you know, that had some of us, you know, who grew up in the 80s and, you know, knew a little bit of New Testament, wondering if Mr. T was destined for hell because he so often pitied the fool. Uh, <laughs> and those of us who grew up pass- in the 90s were worried about Coolia, fool. Oh, yeah, I, had, I hadn't even thought of that. See, that's how old I am. But <laughs> uh, this is the passage in the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says, you know, uh, whoever, you know, you've heard that it is written, do not murder. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with a brother will be subject to judgment. And then he goes on a little bit later uh, to say that, you know, the one who says Raka is subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says fool will be sent to Gehenna. However, your translation renders that hell, fiery hell, hellfire, uh, hell's bells. I don't know. But... um, (laughs) It probably doesn't do that last one, I realize. Uh, But what's interesting about this, uh, first of all, I'm going to grant at the outset that this is a dangerous passage to interpret because every every preacher preaches this passage a little bit differently. But I'm going to give you the Nathan Gilmore reading of it here. Uh, What Jesus seems to be getting at here is that if you approach a brother, and, you know, that seems to indicate, you know, someone who is part of this, uh, city on a hill that Jesus names in the Sermon on the Mount, as an equal. In other words, if you issue an insult, if you say raka, which is a you know an Aramaic insult, uh, you are subject to worldly judgment because you are approaching them on a level field. If you say more, uh, which is to say moron, which is to say fool, you are approaching them as someone who is superior to your enemy, and in that case you've really missed the point of the kingdom that Jesus is preaching, and therefore you really might be headed for Gehenna, which does have afterlife implications, to be sure, but is also the place where historically uh, rebels had their corpses burnt after they were crucified. They didn't get buried, usually. Uh, Jesus was an unusual case in that respect. But instead, they were thrown into Gehenna, where the fire is never extinguished, not mainly because it's some sort of magic fire, but because the Romans never seem to run out of Jews to throw in it. Interesting. Hmm. Um, let's see here. And, and now I've completely forgotten if there's a third part of this. Um, oh, I already did my Mr. T joke. So, <laughs> Michael, I mean, I, my, Michael and David, both of you, actually. And, and, Michael, won't you go ahead and start? I mean, how have you heard this preached? Because it seems to me that everyone has a what Jesus really means is... Story to tell about this one. I've never heard the hierarchical thing you're talking about. I think that's interesting. I I think I'm the only one who does it that way. Uh, I always always just heard that it was a uh, kind of proclamation against insulting people in general. 
Right, right. And the only reason I distinguish is because he is because Jesus himself distinguishes between two different insults. So I'm like, okay, if the sermon distinguishes, I should probably do something with that theologically. So that's how I do it. Well, not only that, I mean, Jesus and many other people in the New Testament insult a lot of people, right? They, they right. say lots of and things. Jesus himself calls people fools in the book of Matthew. Right. So it, it can't be anything. <laughs> it can't be anything that simple. Plus, it comes. It comes in the middle of this radical destabilizing of Jewish law, and I, w- I won't say replacing, but destabilizing. Because I mean, yeah, the, yeah, I don't think that's a bad reading. That, mm-hmm. that whole that whole section of Matthew is is well, the law says this, but actually, it's even worse than you imagined. Right. You're, you're even guiltier than you thought you were. Right. It's, or you need to be even more of a city on the hill. I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit Stanley Hauerwas on you here. Oh, that's 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 fair enough. I, it, yeah. as, as usual, you think you think in terms of uh, social benefit, and I think in terms of personal guilt. But, right. Right. But yeah. So I mean, it, it is. I guess I guess I've always taken it as Jesus using the same sort of overstatement he does elsewhere in that chapter to. Uh, to, to demonstrate universal culpability. Mm. Grubs, how about you? Um, I, I, I generally track with what, uh, with, with the way that Michael was saying in terms of what I've been familiar with mm. though, the, uh, I, I, I guess I'm kind of, I, I might be edging towards yours in that it was, uh, the problem with, with insulting people is, uh, is the degree to which you dismiss not just what the person is saying or what the person has done, but but the person um, in him him or her in him or herself, right? And that that was what I was told was wrong with was the distinction between the insults. That one is a more um, maybe kind of situa- situational. I cannot believe you did that, blockhead. Uh-huh. Um, Whereas the other one is a kind of categorical uh, placement of the person in in that in the in the position in Proverbs you really don't want to be. <laughs> right, right. And, and I will, and I know I realize I'm sounding very Hauerwas this morning, but I will also note that you know when Jesus teaches this teaching, he says that you know if you call a brother these things, so right. he's definitely talking about within the community. Which right. is which is something that's hard for modern readers to understand about a lot of that, a lot of stuff in the Bible, right? A lot of biblical ethics have to, are, are actually community based instead of kind of universal, right? So, so the, right, uh, right. the 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 injunction in the Ten Commandments, for example, is not "Thou shalt not lie." It's "Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor." Right. Um, and what and what everyone forgets is that the first word is not "Do not." It's "Thou." It's you. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it follows from that preamble, you know, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. You mm-hmm. will have no other gods before me. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's definitely addressed to God's covenant people. Yep. A peculiar people. Hey, hey. <laughs> 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 and I, I just, I just want to, I just want to modify what I said before we get a listener email about it. Uh, uh-huh. Jesus does expand it to everybody, right? Because, because in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they ask him who your neighbor is, and, and essentially it's everybody. Right, if you read it that way. But again, we're now we're just going uh, <laughs> sermon notes. So I, <laughs> I just, I just wanted to get that out there before somebody else right. did. I mean, I mean, the way that I preach it, Jesus is himself the Good Samaritan because he's the one who teaches things that offend Levites and priests. 
but he actually offers help, whereas they don't do jack. Leave it. Leave it to you to reinterpret the uh, the Good Samaritan as a as a parable about offending people. Well, yeah, 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 and you know, make it about Jesus. <laughs> That's a Sunday school answer. Yeah, there you go. I, um, I did want to pick up on something that you mentioned before, Nathan. Uh huh. Um, and 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 just kind of ask to to uh, to know this. Um, you, you said earlier that the in the in the Hebrew they allied the the moral significance of fool or that, that, that fool is both not just saying you don't know or, or whatever, but it's all, it's also a moral category. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially in Proverbs. Well, that, 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 that's the thing is that a lot of times in Proverbs, it will say the fool does X thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, the, the way I grew up, if a fool does it in Proverbs, it's a sin. But some of the things in Proverbs that fools do didn't always seem necessarily uh, sinful to me in, in, in right, I guess, right. clear ways. Yeah, and, and part of that is just the etymology of our sin words, because sin, of course, and I'm, I'm telling someone who knows, speaking to David, is an old English concept meaning a crime, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, Greek and Hebrew have this in common that one of their metaphors for this kind of act is an archery metaphor, which is Mm. to say missing the mark. So in other words, I mean, it is in that sense a sin because it misses the mark of a good human existence. But it's not necessarily, although it can be, a crime in that Old English sense. Okay, okay. Because early on, uh, I, I always was... I, I I don't know. I labored under the burden of Proverbs for a long, long time until someone said, well, you know, there are some things that are foolish in Proverbs that aren't actively sinful. Yeah. You yeah. Know, in, in, in that kind of moral right. category sense. Right. And I was like, Criminal oh, sense. yeah, uh-huh. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, and also Proverbs is even more complicated than the rest of the Bible and, and probably even more complicated than the other wisdom books. Because it's a compendium of sayings, many of which apparently don't even come from the Hebrew tradition. Mm-hmm. Right, right, or at the very least have antecedents in Egyptian wisdom traditions, yeah. And, and as Nathan mm-hmm. is so fond of pointing out, it often contradicts itself from verse to verse, chapter to chapter. Oh, yeah. And, and so you, you, have to be, you have to be careful taking anything in Proverbs straightforwardly. Right, right. right. You know, as my Old Testament professor in seminary said, Robert Owen... He said, uh, you know, don't ever counsel someone to take, you know, a verse from Proverbs in context. There is no context. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) That's the point. (laughs) They're isolated. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, hang on. This is not an episode on Proverbs. But, I I mean, there are are chapters that fit together, right? There's the the famous uh, Proverbs 31 woman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are passages certainly that are longer than a verse. I, yeah, I mean, I think he was going for dramatic effect, as I often do in the classroom. Uh, yeah, just in the classroom. <laughs> well, full, full, full is one of those words that has been partially reclaimed. Um, in this case, by the venerable tradition of the Holy Fool, 
David, this is primarily, though not exclusively, a medieval phenomenon, so I'm going to let you talk about it at least at first. What is a holy fool, and why are they important to the Christian tradition? And please tell me you're going to talk about St. Simeon, the holy fool. <laughs> the, the guy that throws throws nuts at ladies in the church? Well, and he, he walks into town with a dead dog strapped to his leg. Yeah, yes. Um <laughs> Well, it, it, you're right to say it's medieval, though um, not only uh, not only medieval, but also especially uh, Eastern. Um, there's some examples of it uh, in, in the West, but it's mostly an Eastern Orthodox thing, especially in Russia. They are all about the holy fools in Russia. Um, you mention uh, you mentioned Saint Simeon of I think Amasa is where he was from. Um, He's uh, he's one of the major ones, probably the 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 archetypal one, if you want to say that that way. Um, and yeah, he would. Uh, yeah, he walks into town with a dead dog strapped to him. He doesn't wear clothes. Um, he raves. He rolls around on the ground. He assaults people. His most notable uh, miracle is turning a jar of vinegar into wine for a guy who wants to open a bar. <laughs> yeah and you know he, he so, it, so he's the patron saint of christian colleges then nice nice <laughs> I, I said vinegar not juicy juice <laughs> he he is the patron saint of fools um <laughs> well so so you know make of that what you will uh anyway the the basic gist of the holy fool is that uh they are fools for the sake of christ and if you go back to um, uh, the Gospels, do this a bit. Paul makes a bit more of it. But if you go, if you go back to a lot of Jesus' declarations about the way his followers ought to behave in the world, um, it's behaviors that that look foolish from the perspective of um, the world and its ordinary way of operating and its you know typical assumed values. Um, when Jesus sends out his his commissioned uh, disciples to preach, he tells them not to take extra clothes and not to do all those other things that sensible travelers do when they take a trip. Um, you know, here's a man who, at least in some parts of his ministry, is the most popular guy in Judea, and he has no place to lay his head. Um, it, you know, little thing, little things like that. Uh, he he tells his he tells his followers to turn the other cheek when someone insults them. Um, so th- there there's all these different ways that uh, Jesus' disciples are told to give up what's considered valuable, what's considered a sensible way of living uh, in that era, in order to follow him. And so when you come to Paul, you know, especially in First Corinthians, Paul wants to say that this foolishness of God which is ultimately embodied in a crucified Messiah, mm-hmm. is wiser than the wisdom of the world. So that when God is uh, calling out his, his people, um, he's, not, he's not choosing many that the world would consider top recruits. Um, you know, it, it's, he, he's, he's choosing the weak and the foolish and the poor. And so, so, you know, G- Jesus is, uh, according to Paul in First Corinthians, um, after his ascension, continually continuing to call disciples who would not make the first string 
in in the world's team of winners. So these holy fools um, in the Middle Ages are embracing that idea that to follow Christ is going to look crazy. And you have, you know, instances like Francis of Assisi when uh, he, you know, he, he takes up his, his calling and in, you know, this, this one dramatic encounter where uh, his father is trying to get him to, you know, to, to do his will um, and follow his, uh, uh, his trade in the, the, I think cloth selling merchant business, something like that. Um, Francis takes off all of his clothes that his father had given him and then goes, goes and hugs the Bishop and calls him daddy. Um, you know, to indicate that everything my worldly father gave me, I give away and I'm embracing, um, I'm embracing a different family now, but in, but for everyone else, here's a grown man taking off his clothes in Mm -hmm. public and, you know, hugging on the bishop, which, you know, was probably not, you know, the done thing. <laughs> anyway, no, 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 they are so, well, yeah, but these holy fools, um, you know, the Russian ones, like, like St. Simeon, are, uh, they're, they're kind of taking it one step further, and they're, they're pushing over into a kind of holy madness, um, uh, which, you know, m- many cultures around the world have regarded those who... Um, are visibly insane or um, developmentally disabled, mentally, things like that, have regarded them as, as occupying a kind of special status. And the holy fools seem to assume that status in some way. Anything you want to add, Michael? Um, no. I, the next question kind of builds off this, but Nathan, do, mm-hmm. you, have, uh, do you have any... Anything else to remark about holy fools in general? No, let's go into modern Russia. Yeah. Semi-modern Russia. Modern enough. (laughs) Um, Name one of our favorite novels, The Brothers Karamazov, and notice I I have taken your pronunciation. Hey, hey. It features a character who owes quite a bit to that holy fool tradition. I'm talking, of course, about the novel Spiritual Guide, Father Zosima. Uh, we did an episode on Butters Karamazov a few years back. I don't remember covering that aspect of that character, but I barely remember doing any episodes beyond three weeks ago. Um, <laughs> so we may be repeating ourselves, I don't know. But what, what does Zosima add to our concept of the fool? Yeah, that, that episode had something to do with existentialism, too, as I remember. Yeah, but... <laughs> you're never going to let me forget that one. Shut um... up. Shut up, man. <laughs> <laughs> Elder Zosima, as I call him, uh, is, as Michael said, a character who doesn't have a very clearly defined place in the hierarchy of the monastery. Uh, he is one of these figures called Staritz uh, in 19th century Russia, uh, which is a, you know, sort of a, for lack of a better term, a celebrity holy man. So he tends to make the other monastic characters in the book uneasy. Uh, he attracts, you know sort of the less respectable elements of Russian society. You know, there's a lot of talk about hysterical women coming to see him to find healing. Uh, He has all kinds of conversations with the sick and with, you know, the mad and and so on and so forth. What's fascinating about Zosima, though, is that, you know, you find out uh, during the the sequence of the novel that's taken up with his funeral, which is, you know, lots and lots of pages because it's Dostoevsky, there's, 
if it's worth doing, it's worth doing over 150 pages for Dostoevsky. Um, you find out, first of all, that he actually entered the religious life uh, precisely in one of these holy fool moments. Uh, he is challenged to a duel, and instead of you know aiming his pistol at his opponent, he fires it off into the air and then stands there and wait, waits for the guy to take a shot at him. The guy misses him but nicks his, his ear. They all have a good laugh, and then, you know, he goes off into the monastic life. In the most uh, Russian scene in, in the entire <laughs> canon. <laughs> it very well might be. But what's great is that his, his career as a character is bookended with that incident. And then on the other end, at his own funeral, there are rumors stirring uh, that he might indeed be a saint of the church, and therefore they're expecting a miracle uh, namely that his body won't decompose, you know, that his body will uh, lay in state for days and days, not embalmed, of course, because they're Eastern Orthodox, uh, and that there won't be a stench. But instead, what you get is his body starts stinking far earlier than normal, and so <laughs> in his very afterlife, he is still playing the holy fool, uh, because, you know, when people expect him to start acting right and behaving like a proper saint... Uh, he starts stinking early, uh, which honestly, I mean, endears me to Elder Zosima even more than I was before. <laughs> Michael, what do you what do you got on old old, old Zosima? Just that he he is the very center of the novel, right? Uh, the the section the the life and whatever of Elder Zosima is the, is a section of the book that when you read, you are tempted to skip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but but don't do it. Yeah, it's it's really important. It's the it's 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 one of the answers Dostoevsky gives to the the kind of problems raised by Ivan Karamazov. About, oh yeah, about the goodness of God, and 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 in some ways Zosima serves as a combination of all three, um, and maybe all four. Uh, Karamazov brothers, right? Because he, he mm-hmm. his his young life is marked by the dissipation of Dmitri, and uh, he's he's an intellectual like Ivan, and and also he's this devout, quiet man. When we meet him, like he's he's Alyosha's hero, so uh, he's right. he's really and he also cent- can't act right like Fyodor. He, he's really <laughs> central. <laughs> he's really central to that novel. Uh-huh. Um, in, in ways that are easy to miss if you're not paying close attention, as I must admit, I was not when I first read the uh, right that book. And, and I'm going to get on a soapbox here that I didn't get on when we talked about that novel in its own episode. Well, one of the things that bugs me most is how many people treat that novel as if it begins and ends with the coffee shop conversation between Alyosha and Yvonne. Uh, just because that's the best part of the novel doesn't mean it's the only part well, of the but, novel. Well, but, I mean, people people act <laughs> as if, you know, the rest of the novel is not in conversation with that, as if, you know, the novel were uh, pretty much exclusively dedicated to offering arguments for atheism. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Um, obviously, Dostoevsky does not agree with Yvonne, and yet he presents... You kind of have a paradise lost situation because he he presents Yvonne's argument so effectively that that arguably there's no there's no proper answer to it elsewhere in the novel. What you get instead is this kind of dialectical answer, a, a, a kind of back and forth. Or to put it another way, there's a weight of circumstance in the rest of the novel that answers that chapter. Mm-hmm. But that chapter, yeah. to, to me, is is so self evidently the most striking thing about the novel that I. You know, I can forgive people for 
for thinking it begins and ends there. I mean, ah. they're wrong, like you say. I mean, <laughs> he does give it. He does give a response, but it's not a direct response. It's this kind of accumulated response. It's, it's yeah, lots it's, of it's, a, it's a lived response, right? Which is, I guess, one reason that's an existentialist novel or a proto-existentialist mm-hmm. novel. David, have you read Brothers Karamazov? Nope. <sighs> You'll note my silence. I, I noted <laughs> your, your silence, like God's. <laughs> As the yeah. question begins to stick, <laughs> I, I, I have for 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 whatever reason, uh, Russian fiction is one of the vast holes in my education. You are a medievalist, an Anglo-Saxon medievalist. I don't think anybody's going to blame you for not reading a 19th-century Russian novel. But if you are going to read a 19th-century Russian novel, do that one. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't always read 19th-century Russian novels, but when I do. <laughs> In Soviet Russia, Russian novels read you. I thought you were going to do that in kind of an Alex Trebek Russian accent. I was really, uh, I was really looking forward to it. I, I just had to deploy it quickly before you could, so I, I, I didn't really get my Russian mouth going. Is is problem? <laughs> I'm sorry to any Russian listeners we might have. I admire you and your culture. Yes, both and your of lack you. of articles. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh man, it's been, it's been a few weeks for me. Clearly, well, I want to park for a few minutes on two of the most famous fools in Western literature. Both of them come from Shakespeare. Uh, we'll start with the comedic version. David, what can you tell us about the fool in Twelfth Night? Well, I can tell you that uh, this past—I uh, believe it's this past spring—actually, uh, my little college put on a. A production of Twelfth Night, and the the young lady that they cast to play the fool was just phenomenal. She she had a she has a good singing voice. She was doing gymnastics. Um, but basically, she was like the the singing parkour fool. It was pretty awesome. And, and, a, and a woman that's wonderful. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She was she was fantastic. Um. The Fool in Twelfth Night is uh, probably the least foolish character um, who's on stage. Uh, dear listener, if you if you don't know the story of Felt, of Twelfth Night, um, I, I won't tell all of it now. But uh, suffice to say that there's a whole lot of foolish people <laughs> in this play. Um, we have uh, Orsino, the love struck Duke. Very foolish. Um, the woman that he's in love with, Olivia, not always the most sensible person herself. Um, Malvolio, the uh, the butler, uh, a, a very arrogant fool. Um, Sir Andrew Aguecheek and Sir Toby. Uh, yeah, Sir Toby. Yes, yeah. Sir Toby Belch. Yeah, I mean, but both of them very slapstick, drunkard, fool type characters. So there's there's a lot of just silly people wandering around the set, and then they have this professional fool who has a name. His name is uh, Festa or something, um, but they only say it very very few times. Most of the time, he's just fool, and in the in in the uh, in the script, he's designated as clown. Mm-hmm. Anyways, which which gives you a completely different image. Uh, 
but as I said, he's he's I would say he's one of the least foolish characters because, uh, well, the play actually says so. Um, it's very clear that he's intelligent, and the thing that uh, other characters, especially uh, Orsino and Olivia, the kind of the two aristocrat figures, um, they seem to value him for his complex wordplay and his ability to um, develop and sustain paradox. Um, he, uh, at one point, he, he calls Olivia a fool because she's mourning her, her, her brother's death. And uh, the clown's response is, I think his soul is in hell, Madonna. And she responds, I know his soul is in heaven, fool. And so the clown responds, the more fool, Madonna, to mourn your brother's soul being in heaven. <laughs> so he, he, he will assert, uh, assert something that seems absurd and then absurd, and then he'll sustain it. Um, and then uh, pro- probably, the, probably the best defense that he's actually wise is that uh, one of the protagonist characters, Viola, actually says he's wise um, she says this fool, this fellow is wise enough to play the fool and to do that well craves a kind of wit. He must observe their mood on whom he jests, the quality of persons and the time. And like the haggard or a hunting hawk, check at every feather that comes before his eye. This, this is a practice as full of labor as a wise man's art for folly that he wisely shows is fit. But wise men, folly fallen, quite taint their wit. So he has to be wise to act this silly. Um, He has to be a a supreme diplomat. She she compares him to a hunting hawk that can modify its flight um, uh, at any point on the turn of a, you know, he can turn on a dime, you know, having seen the tiniest thing down on the ground. The fool is like that as he performs his art. What else would we want to say about this particular fool, Nathan? You know, honestly, you you hit the passages that, you know, stand as most memorable to me. I mean, this is a fool who speaks in riddles, uh, Mm -hmm. which is kind of fun. Uh, And it's it's one of those things, I mean, I'm I'm probably going to steal my own thunder here, which is (laughs) hard to do. But uh, the fool is a character who actually uh, speaks what other characters are thinking. Uh, so therefore, you know, has a role in a dramatic production, uh, that, you know, the narrator might have in a novel, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, to point up what's patently absurd, uh, but you know, the audience might, you know, have some lingering doubt, you know, am I missing something? And then the fool says, no, you're not missing it. It's (laughs) (laughs) these people really are morons. (laughs) This is silly. Yes, yes. Well, especially Malvolia, right? The fool. The fool loves to get him. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, probably uh, if if there was anything that would uh, I would put on this particular fool's coat of arms, um, it's uh, he 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 quotes a Latin proverb: uh, "Cuculus non facit monocum." The hood does not make the monk, but. and then, but but then he summarizes it as, as that's as much to say as I wear not motley in my brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like that. That's that's fantastic. You know, on the inside, I'm not a fool. On the inside, I don't 
I don't wear my status in inside my head. Right. So he does not, uh, on occasion, does will miss the fact that someone is addressing him when they say "fool," because in his head, he's not one. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that that too parallels him to Malvolio, who very much wears his status in his head. Yes. Yeah. Well, a, a whole lot of people in this play who wear their status in their head, and poor Viola, who can't manage to keep the status in her head and the status on her body separate. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to the tragic version. Uh, King Lear also features a fool at the center of the play. Uh, I'm sure Shakespeare is doing some of the same things with this fool as he does with the one in Twelfth Night, but the tones of the play are so different that the fool's role has to change too. Nathan, why is the fool such an important character to Lear? Well, in Lear, uh, you really have a tragedy that is also set into place by a pack of liars. Uh, now, King Lear himself isn't so much a liar as he is an abdicator. Uh, he surrenders what should be his proper responsibility on earth to his three daughters, divides it up. Um, but then once they get that power, well, actually, I mean, when he says that, you know, he's going to do it, you have the famous, uh, speech contest, if you will, between the three daughters. And of course, Goneril and Regan, uh, you know, give very eloquent speeches about how their love for their father is matchless in all the earth, so on and so forth. Uh, when you come to uh, Cordelia, her answer, you know, what have you to say? She says nothing. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a great moment of, you know, the lies stop here. Well, she, she, um, says, she says, I love you according, uh, I, I had it just a second ago. I love you according yeah, yeah. to my measure. Right, right. And, it, yeah, I mean, that's also in the scene, but, I mean, the more memorable response she has is, I have nothing to say, right? Um, at least in my mind. Yeah, I mean, eventually she does say, you know, because someday I'll be married and my supreme love will belong to the one whom I marry, uh, I cannot give you my supreme love, so on and so forth. The point is that the tragedy begins with people lying to Lear. Uh, Goneril and Regan are ambitious. They are not lovers. Uh, you know, they find men who in turn advance their ambition and then later on, uh, you know, satisfy their desires. Um, and at all stages, you know, people are lying to each other to get ahead. This is where characters like Cordelia come in, certainly. Characters like Kent come in, the loyal retainer, certainly. But then also the fool, because mm. the fool travels with Lear. Uh, and honestly, this is one of those places where. Uh, the production history of Lear is so much fun because some productions will render the ca- the character of the fool just as a straight-up character occupying space on stage with the others. Other productions will render the fool as a hallucination that Lear himself generates because no one will tell him the truth. Ooh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, in fact, at the uh, University of Georgia, when I was a grad student, uh, they they staged a production of Lear in which the no one interacted with the fool or even changed their body positions based on the fool's moment movements except for Lear. So, I mean, it, it was a very nice visual representation of, you know, one more facet of his madness. But at any rate, what the fool does that makes the fool so interesting, and often this fool is also played by a woman, is that, uh, first of all, you know, the fool will, you know, speak in familiar tones with Lear, whereas everyone else... Uh, addresses him in very formal, regal tones. Uh, this fool will point out uh, when Lear is, in fact, being a moron. And sometimes Lear even threatens this fool 
uh, you know, which is a little bit tense uh, because we know full well that he's capable of doing crazy things. Uh, nothing ever comes of it, but uh, nonetheless, you know, this is a character who at all turns um, points out, again, what the audience should be thinking about Lear already, that this is a person who should be responsible for a family and for a kingdom and for himself and ends up being none of the above. So, you know, the difference when you get into a tragedy is that people die as a result of it. Um, you know, that that's kind of what makes a Shakespearean tragedy a Shakespearean tragedy, the body count at the end. Uh, but in this case especially, you know, the fool is there to note that, you know, these are not the machinations of the gods like you would see in a Euripides play, but this really is the folly of Lear resulting in his own downfall. Hmm. Grubbs, I, what, what would you add to all of that nonsense? I, I, I don't have anything to add because you've already blown my mind with the Fight Club twist. <laughs> and, and just to, just to make that twist even more evident, David, there is a long tradition in stagings of Lear that the fool and Cordelia, who never appear in the same scene, are played by the same person. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd and, forgotten about that, and, yeah. And, and as he, spoiler um. alert, holds Cordelia's body at the end of the play, he calls her his fool. So I, I, uh. I had never heard uh, of a staging that treated... Treated the fool like a hallucination, but man, that makes sense. And I'm teaching Lear in a few weeks, and I'm definitely going that route. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well like it, I said, at, 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 you know, the UGA drama department uh, was the first time that I ever saw that mm. concept staged, and it, I, it really did melt my brain as well. Well, if if you call her the if you call her the fool if he calls her the fool at the end, and you think of her as a fool from the beginning, in that mm. sense, as as the 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 unconventional truth teller that everyone else you know considers an entertaining idiot mm-hmm. um that yeah that that makes it much much more interesting and, and putting her in the holy fool tradition i think is also helpful right because she's, oh yeah yeah she's she's choosing the higher good over the immediate gain and and from a, you know from the mm-hmm. perspective of a horrible human being like goneril or regan that's, a, that's an incredibly foolish thing to do. Why she turned her back on all this power. Mm-hmm. By the way, have we talked about how there's a trend among conservative Christians of naming their daughters Regan? Although the ones that I've met actually pronounce it Reagan. Well, that makes sense, I guess. They well, spell they it Regan. They, they spell it Regan, but they pronounce it Reagan? Oh, yeah. The best of oh, both no, worlds, man. You get your highbrow reference and your your reference to America's greatest president. Yeah, because I mean, whenever whenever I see that name in print, <laughs> I think, man, this girl's parents didn't like her very much. <laughs> well, I mean, is it Regan or Goneril? Who it's an act four where Lear just uh, gives this incredibly uh, vicious speech about the evils of her genitals. <laughs> I, I can't remember I which one. I it forget is. which one, but I know the speech. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, huh. so somebody didn't read that play very closely. That's that's for sure. Well, or you know, they wanted to you know name him after the you know fortieth president, but saw that hey, there's a woman spelling ver- variation. <laughs> you don't. Well, you there's don't a, a lot of gonorrhals, though. To be fair, it's there's so close well, to I, 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 Can you blame them? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's from Shakespeare. It's got to be good, right? <laughs> oh man. Uh, no. 
Yes, as, as, as long as the middle name isn't Rhea. Yeah. <laughs> Goneril Rhea? <laughs> Makes me sad we're not having children. <laughs> uh, yeah. Name, name her Tamora. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, while uh, Lear's Fool is probably the most notable in Western culture, the character of the Fool is much more common in comedy than in tragedy, especially in uh, especially in, in modern representations. I want to end this episode by going around the horn, each of us talking about two or three notable fools in comedy, be it film, television, or fiction. And if you want to bring in a modern tragic fool too, that's fine with me. Uh, Grubbs, let's start with you. And when you got it, when you when you've said your piece, go ahead and pass it over to Nathan. Sure. Uh, the f- the first that I would name uh, is Barney Fife. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Barney Fife and the Andy Griffith Show, played by uh, the inimitable Don Knotts. Um, if if you can imagine a um, take Malvolio from Twelfth Night and put him in 1950s North Carolina and invest him with local law enforcement powers. And and he'll basically be Barney Fife. Um, Barney Barney Fife is defined by a consistent um, misprision of his powers. <laughs> uh, he 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 consistently over overestimates uh, his capacities and. Not all, but but many, 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 if not most of the plots of the Andy Griffith show revolve around Barney Fife being unable to follow up on his claims of expertise in some area. Um, if if I, I grew up on Mayberry, so you know I know all this stuff. But if you don't happen to know this uh, particular work, dear listener. Um, Simply pull up YouTube and look for Barney Fife reciting the preamble to the Constitution. <laughs> and and you will know everything you need to know about what Barney Fife is like, and in particular, why Don Knotts was so amazing in his portrayal of his character. Uh, another fool, and this is not exactly a comic fool, though often he was funny, um, Columbo. Yeah, yeah, that's a good hmm. one. Uh, Peter Falk. Uh, Peter Falk's detective character in the Columbo series um, what, consistently behaved within within the show as if he were foolish, as if he were dense um, with this uh, disorganized mind. He would ramble. He would he he always looked untidy, um, un- unkempt, undisciplined, and the 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 murderer. Who you always knew, right? Uh, that, that that was that was the Columbo series gag is that you always knew who did the crime from the very beginning. Um, you were just kind of waiting to see how Columbo was going to catch him. Um, they're they're always incredibly irritated by by this this bumbling detective character who always nonetheless gets them to admit things that they'd rather not, or catches them in incriminating <laughs> circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one more thing. He's about to leave the room, and then he's got one more question. And that's when he zings them and then walks off. And they're like, oh, wait, he's not as stupid as he looks. <laughs> and, and then the, yeah. the kind of spiritual heir to that show is Monk. 
Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. Monk has very much the same dynamic. Nobody can take him seriously because he's such a mess. Uh, but he always gets his man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the third, not really as much, not really as much comic, but I am a medievalist, so I had to get it in there. Uh, the Percival figure in the Grail stories. Um, Percival, the Grail Knight Percival, um, is defined by his foolishness, by his naivete. Um, he has no idea what's going on in the world. And uh, many of the things that go wrong in Percival's branch of the Grail quest are his fault because he doesn't know that you're not supposed to take ladies' rings and kiss them when they don't want you to. You're not (laughs) supposed to challenge knights when you aren't one. Um, Yeah, all all kinds of stuff that happens in the Percival story happens because he was basically raised in the backwoods, um, wasn't trained for this, so to speak. And uh, as a result, he's consistently making mistakes as a knight, and those mistakes have huge consequences. Nathan? Well, I've got two of them. Uh, One of them is from the 1978 movie Superman. Uh, And really, there are only two good things about that movie, because it's it's really a terrible movie if you have to actually go back and watch it. Uh, (laughs) The the first and foremost is the John Williams soundtrack, because John Williams has proven uh, with the Star Wars prequels more than anything that he can take any turd on a screen and make it seem very, very important with a soundtrack. (laughs) But what's great about that movie, and this is the second one, is the interaction between Lex Luthor, played by Gene Hackman, the best Lex Luthor ever, uh, and Ned Beatty playing Otis. Uh, And Otis is one of those great fools because uh, whenever Lex Luthor, you know, who Gene Hackman is just having fun being the evil genius, that's that's the only thing that makes that movie enjoyable, Uh, whenever he is waxing eloquent about his latest scheme uh you can count on otis to come come by and to take some metaphor from his speech literally and ask him about it at which point you know gene hackman playing lex luther yells at him and chases him out of the room and so on and so forth and it is, it's just a great you know vaudevillian kind of dynamic whenever <laughs> those two characters are doing their thing so um he is less the holy fool and more of the fool from the book of proverbs to be sure uh, but he also, you know, deflates uh, the the grand ego of Gene Hackman's Le- Lex Luthor, which makes it just a, bu- a bunch of fun. Uh, the other one that I would bring up, and, and I bring this one up not because it is the only one or even necessarily the best one, but because my kids have watched this movie so many times that he is the archetype uh, for the bumbling henchman from live-action Disney movies. Uh, and I'm thinking of Habershaw from The Love Bug. Uh, for lis- for listeners who haven't seen that one in a while, oh man, The Love Bug <laughs> does have a bad guy to it, not just you know Herbie, the lovable Volkswagen bug, uh, but David Tomlinson, who plays the so English that it hurts father figure from Mary Poppins, plays the also so English that it hurts bad guy in The Love Bug. Again, always hatching schemes, always uh, you know giving grand speeches with elevated diction at the expense of the good guys and, of course, at the expense of Herbie because it's Herbie's movie, let's be honest. Uh, but Habershaw, uh, played by Joe Flynn, is always once again there to completely miss the point of the grand 
uh, eloquent speeches given by the bad guy and to get chased off usually by some form of mild violence. Uh, and again, just to give that lovely, you know, slapstick feel to it. So it's one of those things where he doesn't know that he's pointing out the folly of the bad guy, but he does it anyway. So that, that that's my favorite kind of movie fool, I think. Michael, what do you got? Yeah, the uh, the Disney movies, both live action and animated, often have a villainous henchman who is a fool. And that, to, to me, the the kind of platonic ideal of that is LeFou from Beauty and the Beast. The name of course oh. just means the fool. Uh-huh. And and there he too points up the the he he too points up the idiocy of the the movie's villain Gaston, but but in his case by being completely obsequious and completely buying into this this myth that Gaston has created about himself. And so um he's he's a different kind of fool from the one that acts as the audience surrogate and in this case he he pushes the the villain so far in the other direction that that it's it's even harder to take the villain seriously mm-hmm. but i mean lots and lots of disney movies have a fool like think of iago from aladdin he's he too is mm-hmm. a different kind i wanted to talk about a fool in a in a modern tragedy um, the the Coen Brothers movie Burn After Reading is ostensibly a comedy, but the, it, it's comedy so dark that it, it's uh, it's pretty much a tragedy. And uh, I'm I am about to spoil that movie, so if you are interested in not having it spoiled for you, skip ahead a minute or so. Uh, <laughs> the the character played by Brad Pitt is is a complete kind of lovable moron in in, in that movie, and and the kind of tonal shift of that movie the 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 point at which it moves from being dark comedy to i think being tragedy is a moment when the brad pitt character is hiding in george clooney's closet uh clooney opens the door and sees him and for half a second brad pitt gives this utterly genial doofus smile uh at which point his head explodes because george clooney has shot him in the face uh, Man. And, and, yeah. So, so there, there is a there is a situation in which the death of a, a fool is played both for comedy and for tragedy at the same time. It's a very, it's a very interesting movie. It, I will not call it a good movie. And, and like I said, it's it's dark <laughs> even for the Coen Brothers. Right. Right. I mean, what what you're describing though, I mean, reminds me of Steve Buscemi's character in uh, Fargo. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they're fond of it, and, and he, also, he's, he's very funny until he eats it. And and also uh, Wheezy Joe from uh, from uh, Intolerable Cruelty has a very similar scene where he, mm-hmm. he he has a he has an asthma inhaler in one hand and a gun in the other and let's just say he puts the wrong one in his mouth. Mm. Uh, and then finally, I wanted to talk about the new Netflix series by Tina Fey, uh, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, which if you have been ah. watching it, you probably now have the song in your head. Uh, the the central character Kemi Schmidt, played by Ellie Kemper, I think is is a new kind of fool, or at least an elevated version of an old kind of fool. She she has been in a uh, in an underground apocalypse cult for fifteen years. She's released and moves to New York City, and she's very very naive because she went in there when she was fourteen. Uh, she's very very naive, and the joke is often on her, except it's really never on her because the idea is she's unbreakable. Her optimism and positivity and foolishness allow her to survive in this in this urban jungle environment. And uh, so, so while you're kind of tempted to laugh at her, ultimately the laugh is always with her because she is so ebullient and uh, likable a character. If you haven't seen that show, I really recommend it. If you're any kind of fan of Thirty Rock. 
it, it, it's like 30 Rock's friendlier cousin. <laughs> Is she like Will Ferrell and Elf? Yes, that that's right. So maybe okay. I shouldn't say it's a new kind of character. It is very much like Will Ferrell and Elf. Except okay. except Ellie Kemper plays this character frequently. And so uh, you don't have the weird residue of, of the uglier Will Ferrell performances clinging <laughs> to the character. Okay. Have either of you watched that show? No, I have not. I recommend it. It's only, there's only 13 episodes and they're, you know, 22 minutes apiece, so. Okay. You can get through it in a weekend pretty easily if you don't have children. So I guess you guys can get through it in a month. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say 13 episodes. That's about three weeks. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, l- listeners, um, I'm, I'm sure as usual we've left a lot out. So if, if there's a notable fool uh, you wish we'd talked about, send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or go comment on our show notes at christianhumanist.org. Um, we're on Facebook. We would love it if you left us iTunes reviews. There's all sorts of ways to get in touch with us. Nathan, what are we talking about next week? Well, next week we're going to talk about a movie that is seeing its 40th anniversary this year. I'm talking, of course, about none other than Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This would take no prep at all for us. Uh, listeners, just get ready. You say that. I have not <laughs> seen that movie since uh, college. <laughs> sorry so i'm gonna have to prep there you go <laughs> how dare you we're sorry <laughs> well until then we hope you'll get in touch with us uh, we hope you'll keep listening we have a sizable archive if you haven't heard all our episodes this is a production of the christian humanist radio network our intern is zach schmidt our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. until next week this is michael farmer for nathan gilmore and david grub saying let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger Still the same,